0: Uh, Morning, everyone. Uh, Thank you, Sally, and for everybody else who's been involved this morning. Uh, Our journey with Abraham into the unknown is reaching an end. Two weeks ago, uh, we looked at Abraham's Achilles heel during his encounter with King Abimelech. Uh, This morning, we're going to read Genesis 21. It's on page 21 of the Bibles in the pews. Uh, And it's a, a chapter that contains three separate scenes. And the first two are very closely connected, yet the contrast in terms of human emotion is is striking. The first seven verses are characterized by joy and by laughter and by celebration, whereas the next 14 verses are for the most part distressing and sad. And then in the final scene, Abraham and Abimelech are back together negotiating a peace initiative. So let us read the entire chapter, and as usual, we'll stand for the public reading of God's Word. Genesis 21. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised. Abraham gave him the name Isaac to the son that Sarah bore. And when his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age? The child grew and was weaned, and on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar, the Egyptian, had borne to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, do not be so distressed about the boy and your maidservant. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of your maidservant into a nation also, because he is your offspring. Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. And she went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat down nearby, about a bow shot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there nearby, she began to sob. God heard the boy crying. He lived in the desert, he became an archer, and he, when he was living in the desert of Paran, his, mo- his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. At that time, Abimelech in Fichol, the commander of the forces, said to Abraham, God is with you in everything you do. Now swear to me here before God that you will not deal falsely with me or my children or my descendants. Show to me and the country where you are living as an alien the same kindness that I have shown to you. Abraham said, I swear it. Then Abraham complained to Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized. But Abimelech said, I don't know who has done this. You did not tell me, and I heard about it only today. So Abraham brought sheep and cattle and gave them to Abimelech, and the two made a treaty. Abraham set apart seven ewe lambs from the flock, and Abimelech asked Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs you have set apart by themselves? And he replied, Accept these seven lambs from my hand as a witness that I dug this well. So that place was called Beersheba because the two men swore an oath there. After the treaty had been made at Beersheba, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of the forces, returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there he called upon the name of the Lord, the eternal God. And Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines for a long time. Please grab a seat. 25 years have come and gone since God first called Abraham back in chapter 12. 25 years since the original promises were given. 25 years since the journey began. 25 years of adventures, of ups and downs, of twists and turns, of reminders, of challenges. 25 years of wandering and wondering. And now, Abraham and Sarah are holding their boy their son mum is 90 she doesn't make any reference to that, it's interesting but dad is 100 and Sarah laughs although it's unlike the cynical laughter or the sniggering of disbelief in chapter 18 because this is laughter of surprised joy as she says herself, look at verse 6 Everyone who hears about this is going to have a laugh. Or in verse 7, who would have ever thought this could happen? Or words to that effect. But it has happened. And although there is a tangible sense of surprise in the air, there is nothing surprising about any of this. Because what has happened and when it has happened has God written all over it. Look at the the first two verses. The Lord was gracious to Sarah in this phrase, as he said. The Lord did for Sarah, this phrase, what he promised. Sarah became pregnant at the very time God promised. And then in verse 6, God has brought me laughter. In other words, God is central to this story. God is in control of this story. What God promises, God delivers. His timing is perfect. He's never early. He's never late. Humanly speaking, the impossible has happened. But all that does is proves that God's in this, that God's behind this. Plus, as we so often discover, God's infinite power is never limited by our or anybody else's expectations. And most of us probably identify with Sarah's reaction. But I think it's really interesting to note that Abraham doesn't appear to be laughing. Now it's not because he's unhappy. The dad is delighted. But maybe it's because Abraham has come to realize, he's come to grasp and appreciate just who God is. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans 4. Without weakening in his faith, He he faced the fact that his body was good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. Then this phrase, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. How do you get to that place? How do you get to a place of being fully persuaded that God will do just what he has promised? Especially when the circumstances and the facts dictate other ways or imply other ways. Are we, am I, fully persuaded God can deliver on his promises? Abraham's body was as good as dead. That's what Paul writes. Sarah's womb was dead. That's strong. But Abraham still believed. His faith was stretched. But it wasn't crippled. And you know I have no doubt. There are some people sitting here this morning. And you're wondering. Is God. Still in control of my life. Like is God actually. Still in control of my life. And I wonder if. Or when the promises of God will ever come true in my life. And therefore, there are times when our faith gets stretched. Maybe even to breaking point. But this story and this point in the story, Isaac's birth, stands as an eternal and a constant reminder and challenge that what God says, God does, it's only a matter of time. It's only ever a matter of time with God. For this couple, it was 25 years. It may be that long for you. Maybe even longer. Can we be fully persuaded now that God is going to deliver on his promises? Whatever those are to you and for you. Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children well? God did. And therefore it happened. And they all lived happily ever after. Would have been a nice next phrase to read. But this isn't a fairy tale. And therefore, although things initially appear okay following Isaac's birth, it's not long until the scene changes, the atmosphere changes dramatically. And on the day that Isaac was weaned, which is a great word, I love saying that word, weaned, It tends to happen around toddler stage. Infant moves on from milk to a more substantial diet. So Isaac is probably about two, maybe three. It's time for a celebration. Sarah's boy is growing up and so Abraham throws a party. Now at this point in the story, Abraham's other son reappears. Ishmael. Who by now is about 15, 16 He's a teenager with attitude, which I know is a rare thing to come across. And Sarah notices that he's mocking. That's what the NIV, that's the phrase at the end of verse 9. He's mocking Isaac. The New Living Translation puts it like this Sarah saw Ishmael making fun of her son Isaac. If you have a Bible open, flick over to Galatians chapter 4. Where the Apostle Paul actually comments on this scene. And it's very, very helpful what he says regarding what's happening at this party. Galatians chapter 4 verse 29 says this. At that time, the son born in the ordinary way persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It is the same now. So whatever is going on at the celebration, it's not good, it's not positive. And so Sarah goes to Abraham and lays it on the line. She says to her husband, get rid of the boy. And get rid of his mum, that slave woman. Very interesting, she can't even bring herself to use their names. And not only is Sarah really annoyed at how Ishmael is treating Isaac, but the prospect of her boy Isaac having to share any of his inheritance with Ishmael was unbearable. And so Sarah's feelings are really clear. Really clear. She wants rid of them. But Abraham's feelings are clear. Look at verse 11. The matter distressed Abraham because it concerned his son. And I want you to try imagine how devastated Abraham must have felt at this moment. Surely any parent can sense the pain that was ripping at his heart. How could you ever reach a place where you send away your own flesh and blood? And yet that is exactly what his wife was asking him to do. Ishmael had been part of Abraham's life for about 15, 16 years. Abraham had watched his boy grow up. He had watched him become a man. Okay, he may have started the show signs of becoming a wild donkey of a man, as God said he would become. But he was still his boy. Still his flesh and blood. This is a difficult moment in Abraham's story. And it's a moment into which God speaks, as God often does in the difficult moments in our story. But what God says is maybe a little unexpected. He starts by telling Abraham to do what his wife tells him. Now, I'm sure I should go somewhere with that. And and I've I've been so tempted, guys. But I'm going to resist the temptation. Abraham is obviously distressed by Sarah's request. But now his God is endorsing her request. But God hasn't finished speaking. Notice there's an explanation and there's a promise. Look at the second half of verse 12 and 13. God says, here's the explanation, Abraham. It's through Isaac that I'll make you into a great nation. It's not through Ishmael. But here's the point. Here's the promise. I will also make Ishmael into a great nation. Now for those of us who have been following Abraham's journey, let me remind you of what God said to Abraham back in chapter 17. And Abraham said to God, If only Ishmael could live under your blessing. Perfectly understandable request from a dad. If only Ishmael could live under your blessing, God. And then God says, Yes. But your wife, Sarah, will bear you a son, and you will call him Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I've heard you. I've heard your I've heard your heart. I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and will greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of 12 rulers and I will make him into a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac. See, God has a plan for Abraham. God has a plan for Isaac. And God has a plan for Ishmael. God is in control of their stories. God is working out his purposes in their Lives. Those purposes in God's ways don't always make sense to us. They don't always sit comfortably with us. Certain aspects, certain details come across as extreme. Like why does Abraham have to send Hagar and Ishmael away? Why must they be banished to the desert? Why? Why? you could wrestle with that one for ages. Just like as we recall last weekend, we're often left to wonder, why did Jesus have to die such a torturous, excruciatingly painful death? Yes, his blood needed to be shed, but did it have to be so extreme? Or just like as we're about to discover in two weeks' time, after all this family had been through, 25 years of journeying into the unknown, they get to this point, and then God turns around to Abraham and says, I want you to kill your son. Why? God's ways are not our ways. The fact is that Ishmael and Hagar, and this is maybe hard for some people to take, they needed to leave. And so the next day, early in the morning, Abraham says goodbye. And even though this had to happen, it must have been so hard. And as I was preparing for this morning, I came across this sculpture by George Segal. It was created in 1987. It's called Farewell to Ishmael. And using life-sized sculptured figures, Segal tries to capture the human anguish and the pain that filled that moment in Genesis 21, verse 14. And what we see here is Abraham embracing his firstborn. This is the final hug. Just allow that to settle. And as Hagar on the far right stands, she's unable to watch her son say goodbye to his dad. And lurking in the background, behind the rock, is Sarah. And she's watching as what she wants becomes a reality. The range of emotions in this piece of art I find striking. I know some people have a problem with this piece of art, but I find it a very moving piece of art. Now, some people have also questioned Abraham's behavior in these moments. Abraham, you'll remember, is a really wealthy man. Just in the last chapter, Abimelech has given them a thousand shekels of silver. He's given them cattle. He's given them more sheep. He's given them more servants. So Abraham could have sent Ishmael and Hagar away with company. And he could have sent them away with more than enough money and possessions to set themselves up. Instead, he sends them packing with some food. And a bottle of water. And as one writer comments, Hagar and Ishmael are not given enough to survive. They are given enough to get them far enough away from the camp so that Abraham won't have to see or hear them die. That's strong, but you can understand the perspective. And I've tried to get my head around this scene during the week. I really have. And the only conclusion that I can come to regarding Abraham's behaviour in sending Hagar and his son away alone, and with so little, is that actually, Abraham does believe that God is going to look after him. It's the only conclusion I can come to that this incident confirms Abraham's total trust in God. God has promised me, back in chapter 17, God has promised me that he's going to make Ishmael into a great nation. Therefore, God's going to look after him. God is in control of their story. God is in control of their destiny. And I don't want to say make too much of this or read too much into it, but there are times in people's lives when they do have to place their kids and those close to them into the hands of God and watch them as they walk away. And they've got to trust them, trust God with their future. It's a tough but sometimes a necessary call. And Hagar and Ishmael go and they wander in the desert of Persheba, and then this does deteriorate into a deeply disturbing, heartbreaking scene, because in no time at all, and it was gonna take no time at all, the water's gone. And so death is staring him in the face and mum can't bring herself to watch her son die and so she places him under a tree and she walks away and she sits down about a stone's throw away. And she cries. And then we come across one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible. Genesis 21:17. God heard the boy crying. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What's the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up. Take him by the hand. For I will make him into a great nation. You see, God hears the cries of the vulnerable. And notice that it's not Hagar's tears and crying that God sees or hears. It's Ishmael's. And I do believe and I've got to believe that God hears the cry of the vulnerable and the dying and the outcast and the excluded. Because if God doesn't listen, who will? And in this context and in the middle of a barren desert, God hears and God responds and he speaks via an angel words of comfort and words of hope. He says, do not be afraid. I've heard Ishmael's tears. Lift him up. Take him by the hand. I'll make him into a great nation. And I don't know if Abraham ever told Hagar the promises that he had been given about Ishmael. Biblical narrative doesn't seem to tell us that he ever did. I don't know if Hagar knew everything was going to be all right. It implies to me that she didn't. Therefore, that is why she was found crying as she left her son to die. But here, in another grace-filled, grace-infused incident, God speaks hope. God offers life in the midst of mess. God has plans for Ishmael. God made promises regarding Ishmael. And once again, God delivers on his promises. Ishmael doesn't die there. God graciously provides a well of water. They are saved. And the text confirms that God, Ishmael grows up and God is a constant companion to him. It says he is with him as he grew up. And he becomes a brilliant archer and he marries an Egyptian. And Ishmael does indeed, as we all know, become the father of a great nation a moment ago I briefly read from Galatians 4 where Paul devotes an entire section of this New Testament letter to Hagar and Ishmael and starting in May we're going to begin a new Sunday morning series looking at Galatians so I'm not going to go into this in too much detail for now but the final thing that Paul says is this speaking of Christians Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. See, we don't trace our spiritual lineage back to Ishmael, but we do to Isaac. We are children of Sarah, children of the new covenant. We'll tease this out further in coming weeks. But in Genesis 21, we discover that although God had not chosen Ishmael in the same way that God chose Isaac, God was still concerned for him. God still accompanied him. God still had a plan for him. And God still fulfilled his purposes in Ishmael's life. And the next time you read about Ishmael is at his dad's funeral. It's in Genesis 25, where along with his stepbrother Isaac, he buries Abraham in a cave. And the text then tells us that after Abraham's death, God blessed who? He blessed Isaac. So Ishmael's story is different. It's not our story, if you like but he does have a significant role in another story in another tradition final scene and I'm really going to touch on this so briefly we're back with Abraham and he's back in conversation with Abimelech who's joined by his force's commander some people think it's for backup and together Abimelech and Phicol make this insightful observation regarding Abraham. God is with you in everything you do. Now that, for me, is some compliment. Do the people that know me say this of me? God's clearly with you in everything you do. Although I find it intriguing that Abimelech said that in light of what Abraham did to him in chapter 20. So maybe Abimelech didn't quite mean everything. And what follows next is the negotiation of a peace treaty. And the way that Abraham and Abimelech go about this is brilliant. And it's a brilliant model to adopt at any level, whether it's domestic or local or national or international. And I don't have time to do this justice, but here's what's involved. They meet together. They address the issues, including a contentious one regarding a well. They listen, they discuss terms, there's giving, there's taking, and finally they enter into it wholeheartedly. There's the blueprint for peace. Just look at that incident as to how they negotiate peace. Brilliant. We all know peace doesn't just happen. People have got to go out of their way to make it happen. That's why Jesus would later say, Blessed are the peace makers, not the peace-wishers or the peace-hopers. It's the people who go out of their way to make peace, that are blessed. And as Paul writes, if it's possible, and as far as it depends on you and I, live at peace with everyone. Everyone. Here's the model to adopt. And at the end of Genesis 21, Abraham is back doing what he's frequently done in this journey. He's back calling on the name of the Lord. He's back worshipping. He's back refocusing. He's back realigning his thinking. And the name of the Lord that he calls on is this one. And you may remember that a couple of weeks ago, whenever we looked at Genesis 17, God actually spoke to Abraham and said, I am El Shaddai. I am God Almighty. Here in chapter 21, Abraham calls on El Olam, the everlasting God. During our series in the Lord's Prayer, you'll notice how it starts. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be what? Be your name. Because you see, it's the names of God. And there are over 130 of them in the Old Testament. The names of God reveal the character of God. We discover aspects of God's character via his names. That is why it is absolutely crucial that as a Christian community of people, we know the names of God. We reflect on the names of God. We understand what is revealed via the names of God. And at this place and at this stage in his journey, Abraham pauses to remember, God, you are the everlasting one. I am old, but you're going to outlive me, God. And therefore, you're going to see your promises through. You'll always be there. I might be approaching the end, but God, you're not. And therefore, your purposes aren't. And yet, this vast and this infinite and this eternal and this everlasting God is interested in a pilgrim on his journey. And that same God, vast, infinite, eternal, everlasting, is interested in you on your journey. And so, as we finish this morning... And as we call on this name, here's how we might respond. And maybe this is some of the thoughts that were going through Abraham's head at Beersheba. I praise you, Elohim, because you existed before time began. You will exist after time ends. You exist outside of time. You did not start. You will not end. You were not created. You're in control of time. You're not limited by time. That is the God that we worship. The everlasting God. And as we sing our final song this morning, strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord. Here's the chorus You are the everlasting God. The everlasting, you do not faint and you won't grow weary. In other words, God will see through his purposes in your life. What God has finished, what God has started, He'll finish in your life. He'll carry it on to completion. It's only a matter of time. It's only a matter of time.